Hi everyone, welcome to the Slice of Life podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm Novia. And I'm Darius, your host for today. Slice of Life podcast is brought to you by Project Happy Apples, a palliative care project based at NUS Medicine, aiming to spark conversations about death and promote how palliative care, a team-based approach, can improve the quality of life of those with a life-limiting illness. From the loss of a loved one, a pet, having a miscarriage, to losing a job, ending a relationship, Grief exists in many forms, in various degrees, and is pretty much inevitable in the trajectory of our lives. Is there ever an acceptable time frame for one to grieve? How does life go on from here? How do I support people who are grieving? What is acceptable to say to them? We have spoken a lot about palliative care on this podcast, how to prioritize comfort and quality of life nearing the end and dying well. It's time that we address how people cope after a death or in response to other painful events. Today, we speak with Yong Hao, a social worker and researcher with a strong interest in loss and grief. He has worked with people from all walks of life, including cancer patients and caregivers as well, supporting them from diagnosis, survivorship, to end-of-life care and bereavement. Without further ado, let's jump right into it. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Yong Hao. Thank you so much for joining us today. We would love to have you today to talk about grief and briefly tell us a bit more about how you entered the field of social work and where you are at right now. Hi, uh, thanks, Novia, for giving me the opportunity to share my thoughts and my experiences. Uh, I think I'm very privileged to be on this podcast uh, and I think do think that it's very meaningful uh, to uh, what you are doing, actually, right? To, to really tell the public about end-of-life care, grief, and all these things that we don't normally talk about, even though there are some improvement over the years. So yes, <laughs> you know, myself, uh, my name is Yong Hao. Um, currently, I am in Hong Kong. So whoever is listening to this, hi, saying hi from Hong Kong. Um, currently, I'm a doctorate student uh, in one of the universities in Hong Kong pursuing studies in loss and grief, essentially. Now, your question is, how do I get into field of social work? Uh, I never intended to get into social work. Uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, I do not have uh, uh, stories that you often hear that motivate people to go into the social work field. I was fortunate to not have been a recipient of a social work intervention before, and so on and so forth. But what really got me interested in the social work was really the environment, I would say. I think back in university, I was involved in a number of um, student activities. Uh, I got to know some professors who are very active in community work. And that kind of started growing my interest uh, in, in social services right, or human services in general, not necessarily social work. And I, do, I almost completed my minor in human services in NUS back then, uh, but I didn't complete it. I just went on to graduate, but that gave me a lot of exposure of what um, social work is really all about. I mean, I, I, my, my background was in, my bachelor was in, in statistics. This is completely different uh, from what I'm doing right now. And uh, after I graduated, I happened to work in, back in NUS as well. I'm not sure if you know this place called the Chua Tien Po Community Leadership Program which is now called Center instead of program. But back then when I was a student, a student uh, it was a program. And that gave me further exposure into uh, community work, into research as well. I was very fortunate to, and to participate in some research work as well. Um, but that, that gave me a, a, a space of reflection of how much do I want to do frontline work then, right? I able to understand all this back end and how organization kind of work and what are the worries and what are the concerns. 
uh, what would it be like for me to do frontline work? So at the point in time, I was talking to quite a number of people, uh, professors, my boss, uh, people around me. Uh, eventually, I settled on social work. Yeah. So, and that and, and started. And during that graduate diploma in social work that I had in NUS, uh, I went on to do my internship with the National Cancer Center of Singapore. Yeah, I have a wonderful mentor who, are, who eventually I got hired and, and I became an oncology social worker. And yeah, the rest is history. Uh, hi, Yonghao. So you mentioned just now that you did an internship in National Cancer Center. So um, could you tell us more about what kind of patients you interacted with and what kind of issues they faced? So let me take a step back and probably tell you what does an oncology or a medical social worker in oncology setting actually do, right? Uh, so I think that, that covers my internship experience as well. Um, so in... in an oncology social worker or medical social worker in oncology setting essentially really work with patients, caregivers, and survivors on their psychosocial needs, right? From diagnosis all the way to death or post and post-death. And if those people who will survive the treatment with very good prognosis, right, we also need to work with them on their survivorship issues as well, right? It's not as if a person completes a cancer treatment and things will be well. There are pretty much side effects from, from a treatment that impact on the psychosocial functioning. For example, jobs, right? Some of them do worry about returning to work, right? Were they able to cope with work because some medications or some treatments does induce quite high level of fatigue as, as, a, as a common side effect of treatment. And it's not easy to recover from a fatigue if you go through a treatment for a relative long period of time. So all this, essentially, we are trying to meet psychosocial needs uh, of the patients, their family members, the caregivers, and even survivors as well, right? Throughout the entire illness trajectory. And in my internship, I think one of the most, I wouldn't say heartbreaking, but most impression, impressionable experience I had, I have to work with a gentleman uh, who has to go through divorce at the same time of going through treatment, right? So, so it's not easy, right? He has to manage a divorce and there was quite a, quite a bit of outstanding issues that, um, that, 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 that once the divorce is finalized, he needs to mentor as well. So they're called ancillary matters, right? In the legal term, right? So he, he has to deal with financing, right? He was supposed to pay a maintenance and alimony to his wife and children, but because of the cancer, he had to stop work, right? and therefore he cannot pay for that. Uh, unfortunately, um, the the ex-wife demands certain sum of money, right? Regardless of the situation, and then we have to go to the court to right, to mitigate all this issue, right? So you can imagine, you know, from from his perspective, I have to deal with my cancer treatment actively. And I deal with all these legal matters, right? So I literally had to journey with him and work with him and really provide him resources or even work with him, right? To draft letters, to draft appeals and so on and so forth to say, hey, uh, this gentleman in treatment, he can't pay this uh, alimony. He's not, he's not running away, but at this moment, he just can't, simply can't. And that's where social worker comes in, right? Advocate for our, 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 our people that we work with. Wow, that's, that sounds really tough. Just a, just a sideline question. Did they all manage to be settled? Yes, fortunately. That's good, that's good. Wow, um, there's really a lot of issues that I think 
when I initially thought about, you know, what you mentioned about oncology, social work, I just thought it's, um, you know, supporting people through their treatment. But I didn't think I thought that much about um, the impact on their work and their personal life as well, because there's really so much to deal with when it comes to a person as a whole, right? Um, so I'm really glad that you touched on that. So alongside the medical setting, you've also worked in the community um, and you were, you were involved in like grief support, counseling, a bit of education as well. Um, so I guess my question is like, who do you think really needs grief counseling and how do you usually conduct those sessions? Okay. Actually, I would say that most people, to answer your question directly, most people do not need grief counseling. Most people are able to, to adapt and cope and grow from, from their grief experiences. Uh, but those who need grief, uh, so-called counseling or grief support, I would say, are normally perhaps people who find it very difficult to deal with their grief, right? It is so much so that it consumes uh, a majority of their life. Uh, they are preoccupied with it. And therefore, they need perhaps other people, other professionals to help with it. On top of that, usually perhaps their, their immediate environment, their immediate social support circle might not be able to fully empathize or imagine uh, what they are going through, right? So they may seek people to help them validate their losses, their grief, and their experiences. Yeah, so essentially, this, this is what... Uh, uh, grief support counseling too. There's only a very small part of the population. In the literature, people say a few percent to about 15%. It has not quite decided because the measurement hasn't been. They have different measurements of what we call complicated grief or what is now called prolonged grief disorder, whereby a person's grief consumes his or her entire life so much that, that, that the person is preoccupied with the loss. And we are very concerned about the typical functioning of a person in the society or in the community. But this group of people are far by the minority. Right? And that's where therapy itself comes in to help them process the experience of a loss and grief and move forward uh, in whichever direction they wish to take. But can we ask, like, how do people suffering through like complex grief access grief counseling? Uh, good question. Uh, sometimes they may not even know, right? Uh, and sometimes they may be presented in other symptoms, right? They could usually it may be presented as depression or social withdrawal or anxiety, right? Where people around them would say that hey, something is not quite typical, not quite right. Uh, they will probably people around them will try to prompt them. Right. Or maybe other aspects of their life starts to uh, not function as usual. For example, they, they, in their workplace, they may not perform as well in the work or in their study, for instance. Right? Or in other, any other area of their life, or maybe caregiving, or become a parent, or as a spouse, or whatever role they are playing, they are not functioning as, or not fulfilling that role as they used to be. Right? And it comes to the point where uh, it affects a lot of things around them. And, and let's say the person is aware of it and therefore they will seek help. But I, I would say that most people, it, it, it taps into the larger narrative of do people seek help to begin with right, for the challenges and the issues. Yeah, it would, it would take usually a while or like for something really big to, to affect our lives, then we're like, oh, we can't really deal with this on, on our own. And most people aren't very um, willing to admit that they need help. And I think that's a very difficult thing to get over in the first place. And the most drastic presentation sometimes they could, could be presented in the form of attempt suicide. So, so I, wouldn't, I would say that people don't 
probably wouldn't seek help particularly for complicated grief because I think there's no there's very little awareness of what uh, I want to use the proper term prolonged grief disorder is because it's a relatively new uh, diagnosis label I would say yeah so they get presented in other forms mm, so I guess in that case um, like you, their family member or maybe their friends would like kind of edge egg, egg them on a bit and then um, prompt them to seek help in the form of like social social work or maybe just to go see a counsellor? Counsellor, yeah. And sometimes they may go even to the doctor. It's really depending on who they are comfortable with. Right? And maybe they refer them to a psychiatrist or further evaluation and so on and so forth. Mm, yeah, for sure. I think just now you mentioned like prolonged grief and like I'm sure there's like many, many different types of grief. So maybe you can tell us more about um, like not just grief arising from death but what are the various types of grief that we all experience as as a result of just you know painful events in our lives okay um so well um let, let's define what grief is a little bit so it's easier to to converse uh i, I think for, for, for me uh and by large a lot of literature also say the same thing uh grief is essentially a, a subjective set of responses to any significant losses uh, as I mentioned, whether it's a non-death loss, a death loss, any significant loss, right? Uh, we obviously think equate grief with death because death is a major loss in anybody's life, right? It has a lot of impact. Uh, let me let me deal with death losses and the grief that, that arises from that. I think that would be an easier starting point. Um, Death, uh, so typically when people go through what you call typical grief, and grief in terms of responses can come not just from the emotions, the feelings part of it, they can come from a very instrumental, behavioral uh, manifestation of it, right? So for example, people may withdraw from social activities for a period of, period of time, right? And people who are close to them, when they talk about it, they seem uh, pretty okay, right? Uh, they don't show a lot of... Um, extreme emotions or the uh, emotions, uh, but we kind of know they are grieving because in other aspects, other indicators are so they are withdrawing social life, they are a bit more, they need to take time alone more, they talk, they don't talk as much, but those are part and part of grief reactions. And often or not, we find that more in the man, right? that very instrumental behavioral way of grief, right? Um, so, so that is usually the typical process. Of, of a grief and it, it will oscillate from being preoccupied with grief to uh, try to restore part of their life right so oscillation between good days and bad days right? uh, you know what we call the typical grief uh, so-called process there's another type of grief that i wish to highlight is the idea of disenfranchised grief right so kenneth Dovka, american psychiatrist actually uh, coined this term, this infantile grief. This infantile grief in its essence is that losses that are not socially recognized. A classic example, pet loss, right? Uh, we know pets, especially cats and dogs and whichever pets that we have, sometimes we can flow, form very close bond with them, right? And when, well, pet, we will definitely, most of us will outlive the, the lifespan of pets. Right? And, and pets will eventually pass away and die. Uh, and often not, sometimes people around this, uh, people who have lost that, lost the pet, uh, will sometimes give a kind of remarks such that, oh, it's just a pet, and can I make another one, right? Uh, it's not a human, why are you so taking it so badly, 
Right. So, so, so this is a form of disenfranchise, uh, grief, where the person is grieving you know, over the pain of loss, but their loss is not recognized. Right, right. It's like, um, I mean, people, people feel like it's so natural to talk about, um, like when you grieve for a loved one, but you know, a pet is also, you know, someone that you build a relationship with. For many people, that's their companion, you know. Um, and I do agree that sometimes, like when my friends like lose their pet, whatever, like they always get very emotional. But I'm like, you know. Like what are you doing, right? Like it's quite common, but we still should recognize that's that's a, that's a form of grief. Correct. Uh, so perhaps one more I will mention is uh, the idea called anticipatory grief. So it's not necessarily death, right? It could be anticipation of a loss uh, that you know that is coming up, uh, and that's where my area of work is. I'm looking at dementia, right? Uh, dementia caregivers. How are they experiencing that grief uh, of, of losing and continuously experiencing that loss? We know that dementia is a, it's a gradual progress, right? They, they decline in many areas of, of, of function of a human being. And people around them who are close to a person with dementia, they actually have to witness the loss of the person's function and then impact the relationship that, that both of them have, right? And it's anticipatory, in some sense, because the person will eventually die. Yeah. So, so that's, that's another form of, of, of grief. Um, so, so is that form of grief experienced by both the person suffering from dementia as well as the caregivers? Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it can. So I see now that grief is a very broad concept that stems around losing something. It doesn't have to be death. It can be anything, in fact. Is that correct? Yes, yes, that's right. It can go from very tangible to abstract. There are some 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 literature. I mean, just 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 kind of for fun. Actually, in America, when when they talk about uh, social justice, right? Uh, I think the last few years they've been talking about racial uh, issues, intersectionality, and social justice. And interestingly, um, there are some research done about how people are grieving over the loss of justice. Yeah, so it can be go into that that realm. That, but it's a relatively new development over the years. But I think probably what very relevant to us is uh, any losses that are very significant to us. Not just that, it could be relationship as well. Okay, moving on from grief itself, but are there different kinds of grief arising from death that is very sudden versus from a prolonged illness? Mm. When we talk about sudden death, sudden death probably you talk about suicide is one example of it. Right. But sudden death can also occur for you know that a person is, is having a terminal illness. Right. But the death is also unexpected, which I encountered quite a fair bit in, in my experience as a medical social worker, where the doctor based on the clinical data evidence to say that, oh, the person probably have about six, three to six months of lifespan. But suddenly the patient died the next day right? or the week after. Right, the sudden deterioration and, and so true. So what is sudden, right? It's very subjective to the person, right? So I want to lay that out first. Um, so so one of the main characteristics of sudden death or, or, or so even violent death is the trauma element, right? If you kind of anticipated the death in a very gradually manner versus a death that comes so sudden and especially so violently, right? Especially in a suicide, um, Often not, there's a trauma element, right? So this is what call um, the grief becomes has take on the characteristic of a trauma, right? And often not, when we try to work or support person going through such experience, we need to first 
help them work through or process the trauma part of it first before we deal with the actual grief, the loss of the person or whichever. I think working through their trauma can also, like it can work for both sudden and, um, you know, a kind of chronic illness because even when you have more time to prepare for the death of someone, like what you mentioned about anticipatory grief, right? Like you have a long runway where um, you, you know they're deteriorating slowly, like in the case of dementia and cancer. But um, when it happens, it's still super shocking and like a huge part of you um, is still um, like experiencing that kind of trauma of losing that person. So would you say like, dealing with the death from one kind of illness, like um, sudden or uh, chronic illness, do you think one of them is easier or does it just depend on the person? I, I think I will go for depending really on the person. Right? It's really the subjective interpretation of, I mean, I'll put it in a very clinical way, death event. Right? How does the person see that death that has occurred? Right? And you're very right that, that the tra trauma... And trauma, I'm not using in a very PTSD clinical definition of it, right? Uh, trauma is really essentially a very strong psychological impact, right? That's detrimental to the person, and and that person is, is therefore is very subjective. So I was I would go for an answer that you know, it's really depending on the person. And therefore, as I work with with uh, people who are in grief from death losses, especially, uh, it's really find out from their perspective. So usually my first encounter with them is really understanding where they are and how do they perceive the entire thing that happened. And what are like the range of um, reactions or um, coping mechanisms or I guess just general responses that you've seen in people going through grief arising from somebody's death? Uh, I mean, the typical one would be very strong emotions. Your anger, your sadness, uh, your pain, all the strong emotions are definitely there. Uh, also, there's a sense of relief as well, right? Uh, which is which presented in a very, very, I wouldn't say paradoxical, but often attention for a person experience grief. Uh, the person will say that, should I feel even relieved? I feel bad about feeling relieved, right? What does it say to me as, as a wife or husband if I feel relieved that my spouse has died, right? But yeah, I'm still angry. So it's a whole bag of emotions. It's nothing wrong or right. It's just the set of emotions that the person has come through. To so all the way to the other extreme end, where I see person who are a lot more stoic, right, uh, in their responses uh, to that, and often a lot they come come to us sometimes or some when I see some of the the people I work with, uh, they present it in a form of oh I need help for my family because my husband who is a breadwinner has died, and now I need to do something of finances of the family. Right. When I try to ask about you know, how is your experience of that, uh, she simply say that, well, what is important now is try to get my fi family finances in order. Yeah, I think, I think that's quite natural. Like They just want to focus on the pragmatic sides of things. And maybe it's a way of not thinking about their own emotions or maybe because that is really you know, in the way of them processing their, their grief because there's more realistic things and logistical things that you need to be dealing with after somebody's death and that's really tough to have to go through it. that at the same time as you know just processing your thoughts and emotions that's right so so grief is definitely not a linear process uh, and the many aspects of grief are need to be dealt with in a parallel fashion right so i mean really with supporting someone i mean professionally or not is really be where the person is at that point in time uh, i think that's so so critical
Yeah, thank you so much for that. What do you think is the best way that, you know, um, any everyday person, like just like, like us, like our, our, how, do, how can we better support our friends or our family that's going through something like this, um, especially grief arising from somebody's death? Mm. Um, I think, as I alluded, I think it's really be present. Uh, often, I, I think a common question that I often get asked is, what do I say? My question back to them is, do you need to say anything, right? Some, sometimes the present itself is what the person really needs, sometimes. Uh, of course, you need to know the person well and how the person behavior and characteristic, right? But sometimes really, you know, the presence itself is really more than enough, right? The companionship, the silence companionship, sometimes is really enough. Uh, and often not uh, be there to ask, so what help do you need? How do I support you, right? Uh, and often not see, at least in Singapore context, uh, being instrumental in your help. For example, um, if you are students, can I help you record the lecture sessions or whatsoever in practical ways, right? I've heard of cases that, oh, I take care of the children for a while while you're going to take a break and, and so on and so forth, right? So sometimes all this instrumental help helps as well. So really be present. Yeah. So I see it's just like helping in any way you can and just helping out with small tasks and just trying to lift off the load for the person. But the, the key thing, the key thing, the key thing is ask, ask. Uh, sometimes we, we don't want to do things that the person don't want. Mm, so as to make sure that whatever you're doing is really helping the person and you do that by asking them. So I think many people perceive grief as something that affects our lives in a very negative way, in a very depressing experience. So do you think it's really a form of suffering like many people would think or do you think it can be something positive? I hesitate to think grief as suffering. I can see why it is. I mean, I think I'll take on a more philosophical idea whereby pain is necessary, suffering may not be. Right? The pain of grief uh, is something that we will all go through, the intensity of it. So I'll see it as an experience to, to share with you. I mean, I do have, I had lost a family member yeah, last year. So I, I can empathize the kind of pain that arises from it. But I see it as an experience and I see growth in that as well. What does that grief show me as a person, right? How much of, of, of my own outlook about life do I review? Do I change? Right? I think we do hear a lot of stories whereby uh, when they go through a certain experience, especially grief that is very, very painful, it changes their life. Whether it's positive or negative, that's not for us to judge, right? But it's transformative. Yeah, I definitely agree. I feel like, um, like personally, when I was going through my grief when my mom passed away, it was like, it was a lot of emotions that, you know, at the same time and for a very long time. But it's, it's at the same time, it's like, it really helped me reflect on my life decisions and like my goals going forward. It just provided some kind of a clarity that I just didn't really pay that much attention to before. So yeah, I definitely agree with you that it's not necessarily suffering, although it is, I mean, it's not a pleasant experience to have, but it's it's a blessing in disguise in some ways. It also is retrospective, right? I mean, when we are in, in that process, uh, I think we are still are, I mean, to me, grief never kind of ends. It's retrospective. Yeah, for sure. And what do you think um, like a healthy grief process should look like to you? I'm not sure whether how to define healthy grief process because grief process is so unique right, to everyone. We have not talked about the cultural aspect and how it implicates grief 
because what is healthy to a person may not be healthy to another person. Let, let me let me let me give you an example. When I was a medical social worker, and I and, and I worked with this spouse wife who husband died, and before that we were talking about how life would be, right? Uh, when after your husband passed away, we know that her husband will pass away soon, and she's. In, in so many levels, she is accepting. She's more or less prepared before the death. Actually, she said she's prepared. So when when we're talking about it, she said that oh, there are certain cultural things that I need to cultural rules that I need to 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 comply. For example, I cannot visit anyone for thirty days for a month. Right, I need to do certain things and things like that. And I need to completely withdraw from any form of social interaction, right? Because my cultural rules says that. But by and large, the norm will say that your total withdrawal is not healthy. You need to connect to people and, and so on and so forth. So when I talk about what is a healthy grief process, it's really very depending on a lot of factors for a person deemed healthy, right? So I would say what is unhealthy? What is unhealthy is that there is, well, definitely thoughts of uh, attempts of suicide, right? The, the desire, very strong, right? To, to end one's life uh, is something we need to take note Though I'll put a caveat and say that the, the idea of wishing to join the person who has passed away is a very normal, typical feeling. But when it evolves to a point that it's been a preoccupation and there are attempts to actualize that, that to me becomes unhealthy. Yeah, I think you really put it really nicely. Yeah, like it's really like, I guess, a spectrum. Like, of course, you want to still be with the person and join them wherever they are. But when that thought becomes like the only thing that consumes you and that becomes like like what your life um really matters it then it becomes unhealthy and obviously um that calls for some sort of intervention in that in that case yeah and i'll add, uh, consume you for a relatively long period of time i mean that that might be like i spend one hour ruminating and being engaging in that hot right i mean that is part and parcel of the grief process but if it's really over a pretty long period of time right I wouldn't give a time period, but yeah, prolonged period in time. And that is the own predominant thought of that. Uh, that's a, really a cause for concern. Right, right, for sure. Then do you think um, like as a society now, like in Singapore, for example, like is there anything we can do as a society to um, support people who are going through these and to prevent them from really going down the rabbit hole of eventually, you know, even taking their own life, for example? But there's many questions in that actually, right? Because we're talking about suicide prevention, there's one of them, we're talking about how do we support people around us who, who, are, who may be experiencing grief. Um, maybe I'll focus on the first, the later part, right? How do we support people around us who may be going through grief? I think we touched on uh, really be present, right? Be helpful in a way that a person wants to be helped, be, be supported. I, I think that is a starting point. Um, but as a society, if you look at take a step back and look at it, um, I think with this idea of grief literacy, right? They kind of like I talked about before this podcast. I think by and large, the society would probably be more need to be more aware uh, about what grief is and, and about acknowledging that the losses that we experience is not just death, but any significant losses uh, the person deems significantly to be. Um, and also the second part is really about then equip ourselves, right? How do we help or support the people around us. Uh, so that's the skills part. And also the value part of our society, how do we want to do, or how do we want to, I want to say manage, 
but how do we support people to live with their losses and grief? And, and one, of the, one of the things that I see observing in overseas is that this idea of bereavement leave, uh, some countries are really talking about, about that. Uh, and those are paid leaves. Right? It is not typical, it's not the typical Singapore setup where I see a lot is that if your family member dies, you get three days of leave. And those three days of leave are usually needed to deal with the funeral, the post-death, immediate post-death matter, and so on and so forth. But bereavement leave, you talk about two weeks, six months, that kind of thing, right? Where you are allowed paid time while to take time, right? To, to process or to deal with whatever that's happening in your life because of the death of someone else. Yeah, for sure. It's like we have maternity leave for welcoming, you know, newborns. But the same way that someone passes away, you also need time to process that emotion and it obviously affects the way you you know go to work and things like that so instead of you know trying to force someone to work alongside them it's it would be healthier if people were given time off to really transition in that phase of life yeah correct but of course there are also practical implication uh bereavement leaves paid then who pays for it <laughs> right i mean there are some debates and in those countries are considering bereavement leave and there are very real implications you can do that as well but I, I mean, the idea behind it is really about compassion. How do we really engender compassion in our everyday interaction from our micro interaction from people to people right, as members of communities, be it neighborhood or community of common interest to all the way in society in terms of policies, right? Or even company level in terms of policies. How do we be compassionate in the way we interact with people? Not just in grief, but in all aspects of our life. Uh, for sure i think it's generally like we need to build a general like culture of like empathy and um supporting each other and being more understanding and that's really how we can move forward to be a more like you said grief literate society um do you think singapore as a whole like over the years that you've worked in social work or just you know your experience with research and all that um has it improved um in terms of people's willingness to address grief and to support each other through the process instead of it just being like stigmatized or not really talked about? Whether is there an improvement? It's hard for me to say. My observation is, I think we still have a lot to do. I think I'll take a leave from how we have started to see mental health a little, a little bit more differently. I mean, we can say grief is part of mental well-being and mental health issues. That's definitely what I meant. So we do, I do see, see improvement in how we see mental health, how we talk about mental health. And I think in the, in the sub-area of grief, I think we stand to benefit in that sense. But whether grief specifically, have we been more open to talk about uh, grief and the losses of that? Um, I think first, first step is that are we even aware the losses are uh, so impact, uh, impactful and are we aware that we are actually grieving? Again, the dominant narrative is grief equals to death, right? I mean, death equals to grief, right? But uh, how about other losses, right? For example, pandemic, right? There were so many losses, so many of it, but did we able to recognize it as a form of grief instead of saying that it's a form of depression? They, co they can go co-occur, but, but can we recognize it also as grief? I think we have not really done that yet. Yeah, for sure. I think um, this pandemic has really brought a lot of issues to light as well as um, changed the way we live our lives, you know, with all the quarantine and social distancing and all that. So um, do you have any like generic advice? I think now many countries are also going to, you know, another round of restrictions and all that. So do you have any advice for people who are 
dealing with like grief in the middle of a pandemic, um, not necessarily death, but you know, from all sorts of losses, be it like time lost with loved ones and connecting in this world of social distancing and stuff. Yeah. I, I think I wouldn't say advice, but I will share how I deal with it. Probably a point of reference, if you will. I think really take time out, right? Recognizing that I think all of us are experiencing something so, 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 so unseen. I think none of us currently living, right, have ever experienced that. I mean, human history, yes, there were pandemics, right? But this is the first major pandemic that all of us are experiencing. I think be kind to ourselves, right? I think that's a very important part and be compassionate to ourselves. Take time out, be compassionate, be kind and recognize that uh, a lot of things has changed, right? Move at the pace that you feel comfortable. Yeah, I definitely agree. That's that's really excellent advice. I think just constantly check in with ourselves and um, check in with each other around us to make sure that we're all doing okay. Um, take time when you really need to and I guess look inwards as well you know, going well and in certain aspects, like allow yourself to feel and know that it's like some extraordinary times that we're in right now. So yeah, do prioritize your mental health alongside your physical health and just like any as- aspect of your health, it's important and it should be addressed where necessary. Though, though I would say, um, I think it's a balance. I wouldn't say prioritize, prioritize, right? We all need to take care of different aspects of our life. Uh, it's about how to achieve that balance that works for you. Right. Priority often means that uh, this is something more important than the other. I think I do feel that many aspects of our life, be it our work, our study, uh, our mental health, our physical health, and so on and so forth, they are, they, are, they are equitably important. Just that at certain point in time, let's pay attention to this or that and achieve the kind of a spiral upwards kind of a balance. Okay, thank you so much, Yong Hao, for your speaking with us today. We learned so much about grief, and for those tuning in, we hope this episode has given you some insight and tips and tricks to help you and your loved ones navigate your own journey of grief, bereavement, and loss. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was really a great conversation. Um, I'm so glad that we had you. <laughs> thank, thank you so much. <laughs>